The session is entitled um, Moral Hazard and the Limits of Monetary Policy, and I think um, uh, Jeff Lackard just set the stage for that. And just to take a quote from, from a speech, clearly these uh, contemporary examples of the moral hazard effects are d detrimental to uh, public policy objectives. And so um, in this panel, we, um, we will be discussing the issues of um, – moral hazards and the, the limits to, to monetary policy, and I'm sure we'll get into some other, other issues. Um, we have uh, Wolfgang Munchau from the Financial Times. We read him frequently. Um, uh, Professor Andrew Samwick from Dartmouth. Um, Gerald O'Dristel is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and uh, Professor uh, Kevin Dowd um, from Nottingham. And so why don't we just begin with the first speaker, Wolfgang. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, you'll, you'll take um, 8 to 12, 10, 10 to 12 minutes. That's fine. That'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd probably be fine with this. Okay, we heard, and, uh, and Jeff, Jeffrey Lecker mentioned um, metaphors. We've heard the metaphor before about the financial crisis being both about, about markets being frozen up and, and melting down. And uh, and the and it is possibly it's, it's perhaps a way that we are so surprised and taken by this by this thing that we use metaphors instead of instead of being clear about what we actually mean to say. I have my problems with the word moral hazard in this context, also as a as a metaphor. Um, um, it's a, a term that has a very precise meaning in the in the economics of insurance. And in insurance, obviously, if moral hazard is contagious, it the system becomes unsustainable. I prefer to speak in terms of sustainability of monetary policy than in terms of moral hazard. Moral hazard is, to my account, to my opinion, a little bit too conspiratorial in the sense that I never expected investment bankers, even though I may not have the highest opinion of them, but I never expected investment bankers to actually collude, to actually expect or to actually judge their – to, to take particularly high risks in order to be bailed out – uh, I think they, they simply they simply miscalculated their risk. I would think that is a far more far more far more likely that they relied on faulty risk models and that they didn't understand those risks. Um, and I don't think this is comparable to someone who commits an insurance fraud uh, in the knowledge that the insurance company would pay up. But sustainability of monetary policy is a legitimate question, and related to that, the question of the limits of monetary policy, which is the headline or the title of our of our discussions. Now, Paul Krugman wrote in his, in his blog once um, a short comment about the, the purpose of monetary policy or how monetary policy works. He said, here is a committee that makes a decision, some trader at the central banks phoning through that decision, communicating it to the market, and suddenly at, some, at the other end, the economy is creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. Now, that is sort of a, an, an understanding or a a description of the monetary policy process that you would probably not hear in Europe. It's our, 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 our thinking of what monetary policy can do is much more limited. It's possibly because in other countries it is much more limiting what monetary policy can do. And the limits of monetary policy have been clearly evident in this crisis. This is not a, a financial or an economic downturn where it was still the natural response of economists and Newspaper commentators as well, in particular newspaper commentators, to say whenever there's a problem, cut interest rates. Um, but in, in the end, we've seen very sharp interest rates cut in the, in, in, you know, everywhere in the world. 
have not been able to, even a year later, um, the crisis is, if anything, we are significantly, we are probably more concerned today about the next 12 months than we were a year ago, uh, uh, a year ago about the, the, the next 12 months. And the, we have come to see the limits of monetary policy in the way we haven't seen this in, 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 a la, in, a man, in many, many years. Uh, most recessions we have been through were, were recessions where monetary policy had traction. We are now in a situation where monetary policy's help is, 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 is of very limited um, uh, effect. This is not because it's wrong to cut interest rates. I don't think it is wrong. It's just because it didn't have the desired effect. In the, in the real, world, real world interest rates in Europe, where central bank rates are still higher than they are here in the United States, are not that much higher, uh, if at all. The, the main constraint um, here, as well as there, is availability of credit, not the price of credit. Um, and, um, and, the, and the actual interest rate, the market interest rates, are determined, obviously, in the money markets, which have yet, uh, not yet, which do not uh, reflect the central bank rates um, because of the of the known problems. Um, associated with the question of um, sustainability of monetary policy is the question of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm associated with the question of limits of monetary policy is the question of sustainability, the question of what can monetary policy do effectively. Um, and again, here is a difference between the United States and, 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 um, and in Europe. When in the United States the uh, interest rates were cut, that itself did, for example, not have a negative effect on the currency. We've seen the dollar has risen. Now, when the Bank of England tried to surprise us all with a 150 basis point cut in interest rates, uh, it created a very different effect. It shocked most observers, and we've seen what some people in the United Kingdom call a sterling crisis, a very cheap, sharp depreciation of, of the currency. So that country is clearly, even though it has very similar problems to the United States, an over-indebted private sector, housing price booms, uh, in, many, in many ways very parallel problems, the, uh, the ability of monetary policy to solve, solve this problem has actually uh, uh, had an effect on the currency, a negative effect on the currency. And some say it is, it is necessary for sterling to appreciate, to, to depreciate at this point, but, but this, the scale of this depreciation was, neither, was not intended by the Bank of England, and I think there's a, they are sort of at this moment uh, uh, somewhat concerned about, about, um, about the situation. Now, what have we... Uh, the ability, so in other words, the ability of several central banks, or many, most central banks in the world, to run unsustainable policies is actually very constrained. If you run unsustainable policies, you get a problem. Now, the ability of the United States to run unsustainable policy is significantly greater. And that has much to do with, the, with the, what, what, what's called um, the Bretton, Bretton Woods II system. Uh, if I sort of describe a, a simplified mechanism that Asian governments, after the Asian crisis, created excess savings... Uh, at, at they made sure that their, their exchange rates were, were relatively undervalued, so that this ended up in, in, in very large current account surpluses, very much as a hoarding of foreign reserves. We've seen the opposite, obviously, in the United States, where this led to current account deficits and huge capital inflows, which, led, which allowed the American Central Bank to, to cut into or to, to leave interest rates at, 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 at very low real levels for very long periods. Now, the point is not, as it's often made out to be, that one decision in 2003, I think, to cut interest rates to 1%. Now one can agree or disagree with that decision. Uh, the point is that over a period of, 
I don't know, 15 years, maybe 12, 12, 10 to 12 years, real interest rates in the United States have been very, very low. With, with exception of, of, a, of a few of a few short periods, this is this is a long, accumulated, uh, accumulated process, and it was possible due to this what is now known as the the Bretton Woods uh, mechanism, um, and so the the sustainability of the of the interest rate policy here is very much related to the sustainability of this Bretton Woods two, you know, Ponzi game, if you can call it that, the the uh, the question that here China could ma- maintain these huge these huge surpluses, America, the United States could maintain these huge current account deficits indefinitely. And there were economists who, are, who argued that, it, that this was possible. I personally don't think it is possible. I think we're going to see uh, it was, in my view, the, the deep-rooted cause of this financial crisis. It was not a, a regulatory. I mean, it, it, it was not a, in that sense, not a financial crisis, or a, even though the crisis took place in the financial markets. It is where we saw the crisis, but the, in, in its deep roots, in my view, we don't understand those roots yet. We'll, it took us a long time to understand the roots of, of the Great Depression. That was not, that they were not fully understood during the Great Depression, and I think the same will happen here. We will understand the, the, the causes of this crisis better in, in 10 years' time than we do today. My, my, my suspicion is that this was caused fundamentally by economic imbalances that led to a, a monetary res- policy response here in the United States that in conjunction with, with you know, financial deregulation, financial innovation, and all the other factors we've been de- uh, talking about created this monstrous bubble in the housing market and other parts of the, of the, of the, of the economy. Um, so what is the route back to sustainable monetary policies? I fear the answer is, is, is a... Is uh, I would assume that the, the um, I would assume that Bret- Bretton Woods too would eventually be unwound in some in some form in some way. How this can be done is is a, is a subject for another an, a, another speech. Should it be through another system of international policy coordination, uh, so a freeing up of, of Asian exchange rates? There are various proposals how to coordinate these uh, global. Um, um, whether and to which extent to, glo- uh, to, to organize exchange rates. I don't want to go into this um, in any detail here. Uh, I would think in the end it will be necessary for central banks to adopt rules-based systems based on price stability um, um, that are not abandoned when crises come, that are basically maintained in a, in a, in a, in a, in a sustainable manner. Direct inflation targeting, as many central banks have adopted it, is certainly not the answer to all our prayers in the sense as that, as that we have had a problem with, uh, with Esther, that, that it didn't, wasn't su- uh, successfully able to, to uh, take account of asset price bubbles. Uh, the European Central Bank has a second pillar uh, of monetary indicators, whether, as, as Otmar Issing was saying, this is a tr- certainly a transitory, a, a transitory regime for the period as long as we don't have a unified model that that would, would enable us to take the to to, uh, to integrate monetary and credit factors into a sort of inflation forecast, um, um, uh, and until that time period, we will have to essentially work under such an imperfect, uh, an imperfect system where we where we try to target inflation using information from asset markets, from money, and from credit, and and make make, make a judgment. The, the, the I would assume that we will eventually have a, a, a better coherent model where we can, where we can, um, 
where we can integrate this. So in my view, these are the two, the two things we will probably need to, to maintain, the, to increase and improve the sustainability. One is, one is a, a, um, a, the adoption by, you know, and, and the pursuit of, of consistent inflation targeting strategies that are, not, that are pursued pretty much, in particular pursued in times of crisis and not abandoned in times of crisis. And the second is to um, abandon this, uh, this Bretton Woods II system which um, allows or it, it, which allows a central bank to to um, to keep interest rates real interest rates artificially low, uh, which can while it appears uh, positive in the very short run it has it has these very damaging long run consequences so that would be my two proposals for maintaining sustainability uh, in central banking. Thank you very much. Andrew? Good afternoon. I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to the Cato Institute. I am a little bit surprised that at the Cato Institute I haven't heard the words liberty and freedom as much as I thought from reading the materials about the Cato Institute I think that the fallout from the subprime crisis is going to be one of the largest expansions in the public sector that we've seen in my lifetime, and the expansion of the public sector is something that's hard to undo. In those times in our history where it has been undone, it has come at the cost of substantial political capital, political capital that could have been used to pursue other parts of an agenda. Uh, if for no other reason the issuance of a trillion dollars or more of debt is going to expand the size of the government uh, in terms of the tax revenues required to finance that in the future. This is Cato. That's supposed to be important. That's sort of the, the ground rules for coming here. I would say that the biggest problem in what we've just been through was not the bad loans or the excessive leverage per se. I don't think there's anything in a capitalist or free market outlook that prescribes the issuance of bad loans and the use of a lot of leverage in some cases. I would say that the big problem has been the unwillingness to adhere to our established procedures for dealing with illiquid and or insolvent institutions. And it has been that lack of faith in the established procedures that has led to what I think our big problems are. We have two flavors of those big problems. In the short term, the taxpayers are now on the hook for about a trillion dollars in what I will politely refer to as giveaways. There has been absolutely no discussion in any of the descriptions of these new programs to issue debt to change around balance sheets that the current generation of taxpayers will do anything out of the ordinary two years from now in order to repay that debt and bring the debt-to-GDP ratio back down to something that might have existed before the crisis hit. And so I, I think that's a, a short-term problem in the way we're describing this, and we seem to not be curtailing what we're willing to do based on some notion that this generation of folks whose institutions have gotten us into this challenge are going to pay the costs. The longer-term problem is that if you have a set of established policies and you're not going to adhere to them, then in anticipation of the next crisis, you need a new set of established procedures, which at that time you may decide to ignore. But if you don't have them, you know, that, that's not even an option for you later on. 
Okay. So those are where I think the problems are, and you can see in just that prefatory set of remarks where my biases are. Um, earlier panels talked about um, how we got into this mess, and I don't mean to, to gloss over that, but this is a panel um, more about moral hazard than about um, causes per se. I think it's got three components. Uh, it's got cheap credit. It's got excessive optimism. And it's got financial innovation that was very hard to keep up with in real time. There will be ample time later on to write the history of uh, this period in financial markets, and we will eventually figure out what was going on. It was interesting earlier today to hear people simply refer to it as, you have computers now, right? That we simply accelerated uh, aspects of uh, financial innovation uh, that we have historically had. When a financial crisis hits, policymakers have, I would say, two categories of options they can pursue. The first would be damned if they do, and the second would be damned if they don't. The damned if they do is how could you possibly change your rules midway through the process when you said you were going to adhere to those rules? Look what you've done. And the damned if they don't is how could you stand by and watch this happen? This is, by all accounts, a systemic crisis. To address a systemic crisis, you need something as big as the system. Well, for small countries, that could be some external source of funds. But for a big country like us, that's basically the government of that big country. That's the thing we have that's as big as the system. And I don't seek to minimize the trade-offs that are involved with deciding whether you're going to suffer from damned if you do or damned if you don't. I would make a lousy central banker. Uh, among the many talents that I, I don't have, I don't seek to minimize how much of a challenge that is. What I would say is that in a hyper-media-sensitive culture, those who are aggrieved or perceive that they are aggrieved seem to have immediate and direct recourse to the policymakers. And so there is no buffer that stands between policymakers trying to make hard choices and the loud uh, complaints of those who are not advanced by those hard choices. Uh, okay, the government is not defenseless in this battle. It has uh, two lines of defense. The first is the Fed's traditional role as lender of last resort. This is mostly designed to deal with solvent but illiquid institutions, and I think this role is essential, and I, I'm not someone who wants to dismantle the Fed in, in, in any way, and I think the Fed, to its credit, has been pursuing every power that it has very aggressively. And in fact, it's dusted off some of the powers we didn't quite realize it had and has been using them quite aggressively. I don't think there's been a serious complaint that the Fed's not doing enough in its traditional role as lender of last resort. If, if there is, then, then it would be news to me. The second line of defense is, however good you think it is, there are established procedures for bankruptcy of institutions, uh, be they financial or non-financial. And the question I've had since basically March, when, when Bear Stearns uh, lined, up, uh, lined up for assistance, is that there has been tremendous political pressure to avoid the established procedure. And I think this goes to the heart of the troubles that we currently find ourselves in and why it is going to be very difficult to emerge from this. It's political pressure. It's a little bit the fear of the unknown. But still, we have forsaken these established procedures that might otherwise suit us very well. 
part of that pressure comes because the government is not, I could say, innocent bystander here, but I, I don't want to use that term. I would say is not indifferent as a bystander to what happens in uh, our version of, of free markets. Some of the stakeholders in the financial and non-financial corporations are insured. FDIC is the uh, obvious uh, source of insurance. But when you look at what's happening in Detroit with the big three, uh, there's unemployment insurance. And the one where I haven't seen the stories, but I'm sure I will soon, disability insurance. I mean, what, what are the odds that displaced auto workers are actually going to collect UI and then go get a job somewhere else? They're going to claim that they're disabled and our disability insurance system is not set up to deny them en masse uh, those claims. So some of the stakeholders are insured. So given that you're going to have to pay those claims anyway, isn't there a reason why you'd want to get involved sooner rather than later? That's a, that's a question. The government has tax revenues that depend on the amount of activity in the economy. And so if you spent a dollar today to try to prop up some activity, won't you get a little bit more in taxes? Okay, that's a, that's a hypothesis. It's not clearly false. So that's another reason why the government feels uh, compelled to act. And I guess the third piece of this is that bankruptcy may be orderly, but it is neither quick nor cheap. And so it will be a protracted experience in a very visible way. Um, and so the government is exposed in, in that sense as well, uh, politically if for no other reason. So doesn't it mean through these various sources of exposure that the government should intervene? And I would say the answer is no, not necessarily. And if it were up to me, which perhaps blessedly it is not, I would like to see them holding the line a little bit more. The key problem in what the government is looking at, mostly through the non-Fed aspects of the way it's getting involved, is an enormous debt overhang problem. You cannot finance economic activity from an institution where most of the benefits of that marginal activity they would take on are going to go to shore up the position of existing creditors. And that is, is our biggest problem. So the government feels like it must intervene to give money to those institutions that might collapse without that money. Uh, an infusion of equity may reduce claims on the FDIC, but it's not going to do it dollar for dollar in the sense that just paying out FDIC claims would do because what's going to happen is other non-insured creditors are going to see their position strengthened by the infusion of that cash. And God forbid, equity holders will actually see some benefit of this. You made a transfer from the taxpayer to insured depositors. That's okay. You were on the hook for that. But you made a transfer from the taxpayers to non-insured creditors, or you made a transfer from the taxpayers to the equity holders. I mean, how, how do you explain that except for naked patronage of uh, the special interest over the general interest? Your problem is the debt overhang. You could give, for example, the big three automakers cash – and some of that cash will alleviate or minimize the haircuts that the existing creditors would otherwise have to take if you didn't intervene. And so I think if there's a moral to my, uh, my rant up here, I would say it in the following way. If the government were to get involved in the financial status of any individual corporation, it might choose to do so while the firm is in bankruptcy, not before. And even then, it shouldn't get to the back of the line of those seeking 
uh, funds out of that company, it should get to the front of the line. So it should come in only after the existing stakeholders have given up as much as they can give up. And when it does so, it should provide the marginal funds and get the first dollars out of the company. If you have a project that is going to return money in excess of what was put in, then you can give back the folks who contributed the financing first and still have some left over for the others. All right, if you get involved too soon, you are, in what the current president likes to say, you are negotiating with yourself. You are racking your brains to try to figure out what package of assistance you could offer to these firms that are in trouble, and you have to continually revise that until you give them something that they will accept. I think that's kind of ridiculous. I think the stakeholders of that firm should have to absorb the losses that, after all, were the consequence of projects where they would have borne the upside. They should have to continue to negotiate amongst themselves. And then when they have negotiated enough and reduced their claims enough, then the government can come in and and provide assistance if we really are in a situation where private credit is, for reasons of a credit crunch, too difficult to find. Okay. There, the reply to that will always be, but what about the foregone investment? Uh, what about the foregone economic activity that may result? And in order for that to be weighing very heavily on your mind, you have to believe that the firm in question, the one that's in trouble, is the only firm that could have undertaken that project. If there's some other firm that could have undertaken that project, then there was no particular reason to pay off the creditors of this existing firm just for the sake of it doing a project that somebody else could do. Clearly, in the case of financial institutions, it doesn't matter which bank you get the money from. You're better off getting it from a healthy bank as opposed to an unhealthy bank. Ignoring for a moment what the government would have to pay out in, say, FDIC uh, claims, you're better off giving your dollar to a place that doesn't have to use it to pay off the existing creditors. It is also this conjecture that there would be foregone economic activity that would not be able to be uh, replaced elsewhere in the economy. That's likely false in the case of non-financial corporations, uh, but it's going to take longer to resolve, and I think the extent of that damage is ultimately something of an empirical question. Okay. The last thing I want to say, and this is by way of just summary, is that you don't hear about it too much in the uh, financial press or any other press for that matter, but not everyone went hog wild during what I refer to as the debt lace consumption rampage. There were people who could have taken on more debt that was prudent and bought a bigger house than they could afford. There are people out there, I could raise my hand as one of these people, who's been trying to save quite a lot over the past several years, and what has happened to me. I have seen, as the government has tried to intervene on behalf of other people not so uh, prudent or not so interested in saving, that the rate of return I can get simply by putting the money in the bank is substantially lower. Imagine if you were maybe the last prudent bank left in America. Over the last several years, you have been seeing other originators of mortgages chewing down your market share. So there's reckless lenders and there's prudent lenders, and the reckless lenders were being very aggressive. The prudent lenders could have copied, but let's say they didn't. So the first thing they did was they lost market share. As the asset value started to fall, what happened? They were immiserized by the falling rate environment. 
banks can get can make money in high interest rate and low interest rate environments, but not if the low interest rate environment puts the deposit rate so close to zero that the spread is squeezed. And then the second thing they've had to see, this is insult to injury, is that all of the discussion in Washington today is about what else we could do to prop up the value of those assets. And so the prudent banker is out there wondering, I thought that by being contrarian, I would actually have the opportunity to pick this stuff up at a cheap price later on. But instead, what I discover is that you are taxing me on my corporate profits to, to, to create a pool of money to go out there to prop up the assets of the people who are recklessly competing against me. It is about time that if the government was going to get involved, it did so on behalf of the prudent and not the profligate. Thank you. Gerald, you're up. Uh, thanks, Mickey. I'm delighted to be here. Um, <clears throat> and uh, one of the things about speaking in the afternoon <clears throat> is uh, a lot of people have stolen your thunder, but on the other hand, they've also laid groundwork for what you're going to say. Uh, I have a hand. I want to deal very quickly with one issue uh, that others like Bert Ely have also dealt with quickly, which is. This was not a case of regulatory failure. Uh, there's a handout with a chart that I uh, that you can get them upstairs. And my chart one is a, a, a graphic visual representation of all the players that are left in the financial services industry. By that I mean you won't see any standalone investment bank because they don't exist anymore except as boutique operations. And it's like it's like a bee a swarm of bees around the regulated part of the industry. Uh, so. Regulation, I think, failed, but not for want of quantity. And I think that one thing that has to be considered for those who are enamored of more regulation is that public choice theory has, and there's extensive literature on this, for years argued that uh, an industry that is regulated will inevitably uh, capture the regulatory agency, which will become more consumed with protecting the industry than protecting the public. And you know, there's an ample amount of regulation. If you can figure out, way, out a way to counter that dynamic, you, you, you certainly don't need to add any more regulation. So uh, my focus is on uh, the role of monetary policy, and I see uh, monetary policy impinging in two ways, uh, and the second of which is directly on the topic of moral hazard. But I want to say a few minutes, spend a few minutes on the first way. Um, uh, Axel Leyenhoofer has really, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, been pounding home a point that I find very congenial, which is that inflation targeting has misled central bankers. And I go in here through the history of how inflation targeting came into central banks around the world, and there's some debate about whether the Fed was ever actually engaging in it, but the financial markets thought they were, so they acted as if they were. Uh, in Leyenhoofer's words... Um, that you the trouble with uh, the trouble with inflation targeting is it doesn't tell you anything about whether your monetary policy is stimulative or not uh, and here's the argument <clears throat> um, if you have growing productivity uh, it's an old argument if you have growing productivity and you maintain the stability of a basket of of final goods, prices of final goods, uh, then you are going to have to 
uh, inject uh, money, reserves, into the system uh, to depress the rate of interest below the natural level. Now, Lane Hoofett argues that from a Vexelian point of view, uh, I use Hayek and Mises, but you come up at the same, at, in, in the same uh, position. Um, now, <clears throat> what you get out of this is that even if um, you uh, were successful, and it is you actually you had an inflation target and you kept to it, and, and let's say for the sake of argument it was actually zero, and you, and you kept to it, uh, you're still producing a lot of monetary stimulus. And in terms, either, either variant of this model of Excelian or the Hayekian produces asset bubbles as a consequence, even though you have, in Lane Hoovitt's terminology, easy money without inflation, that is, without me inflation measured in the standard way. Now, uh, when Hayek wrote this in the 30s, he had, he, I mean, he had, the case was kind of limited because he was assuming a gold standard, and um, you, you, you had just so much scope for this kind of stimulation, it could go on for just so long before you, you were going to eventually produce inflation in the ordinary sense. But the reason Lane Hoofit has reprised the argument in the last couple of years is that the sort of productivity argument has taken on huge significance with the opening up uh, of particularly China and India, where you have two and a half billion people supplying the manufactured goods that Western countries consume and consuming commodities produced in the rest of the world, in some cases in developed countries. Uh, <clears throat> so that it's sort of Hayek on steroids that by looking at domestic prices that are being held down by the output of two and a half billion dollar of uh, two and a half billion new producers, you, uh, you, you simply ignored all the monetary stimulus that was being absorbed into assets rather, into that, rather into, than into domestically produced goods. Okay, I want to get, uh, spend more of the time than I was going to on the moral hazard since the concept's been challenged. Now, moral hazard is not a metaphor in, in this context. Uh, because it's, it certainly does come out of insurance, but all moral hazard says is that it, a poorly constructed insurance contract will give the person an incentive, the person who's insured, to devote fewer of his own resources to avoiding the risk. It doesn't mean that he's going to consciously engage in a fraud. It just means he now has, has less reason to spend his own resources, for instance, on fire prevention at his house because he's insured. Now, of course... Insurance companies don't write those kind of contracts. In fact, they usually try to reduce moral hazard from the baseline by, well, it used to be building codes were in the contract. Now a lot of them are enacted in law, but there's still a lot of behavior when you get a, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a casualty insurance policy that's, that's constrained and controlled. Now, um, the, the, the sense in which monetary policy is... Uh, induces moral hazard, uh, was encapsulated in street talk, Wall Street talk, when they talked about the Greenspan put, which is now called the Fed put. Uh, and the Greenspan put, as I understand it, was first coined after the rescue of long-term capital management. And the idea was that if things go awry, well, certainly if you're big enough uh, to affect the market systemically, uh, the Fed is going to come in and reflate. Now, this this uh, policy uh, 
was articulated over the years by Greenspan, I think, for Greenspan very clearly. Uh, he did so, I know, at least in 1999 testimony. And then in a long speech in December of 2002 to the Economic Club of New York, he really laid the policy out in detail. And that is where uh, what we call the Jackson Hole consensus was laid out. You can't detect a bubble when it inflates, but you, can, you damn well know when it deflates. And monetary policy shouldn't keep it from inflating, but it should offset it for deflating. That, of course, leads, as Ising pointed out, to asymmetric policy. And, and is what the market calls the Greenspan put. Now, <clears throat> I, 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 Ising also stole another one of my points. It, famously, William McChesney Martin once described his job as taking away the punch bowl uh, when everybody's about to get married. But now, in effect, because of this policy, the Fed has promised to spike the punch bowl at the first sign of sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the, the <laughs> it worked. Um, now, in the 2002 speech, Greenspan quoted his 1999 testimony when he said that what the Fed does is, quote, to mitigate the fallout of an asset bubble when it occurs and hopefully ease the transition to the next expansion, that is, the next asset bubble. Now, I've got to tell you, I've given this talk uh, twice at university campuses to disparate group, faculty, students, public. And the second time I gave it, I was, I was about to get to this point when a student's hand went up, and I said yes, and he said, well, you've just described how they create asset bubbles. Isn't that what they're doing right now? Yes, that's what they're doing again. So um, <clears throat> now the argument, you see, I think that both the both – Chairman Greenspan and Chairman Bernanke, asked the wrong question but gave the correct answer to the wrong question, which is uh, should the Fed run around identifying asset bubbles and prick them, deflate them? And the answer is no. And in, here's a brief excerpt from one of Bernanke's speeches. The prices of equities and other assets are set in competitive financial markets, which for all their undeniable foibles are generally highly sophisticated and efficient. Thus, to declare the bubble exists, the Fed must not only uh, be able to accurately estimate the unobservable fundamentals underlying equity valuations, it must have confidence that it can do so better than financial professionals whose collective information is reflected in the asset markets. Now, uh, close quotes. Uh, Issing uh, uh, gave his reasons why he doesn't think that argument is uh, persuasive. And... Uh, I don't either, because if, the f if monetary policy, if stated monetary policy, if repeated monetary policy, at least since the 90s, is perceived that the Fed, uh, the put is a metaphor, the, the Fed will come in and reflate after an asset bubble, then uh, transactors will uh, of take fewer risk-avoiding measures they will devote fewer resources to risk management, mis risk management and risk-avoiding measures. Um, now, the, the problem with the argument is that the economic value of the Fed's put is incorporated in the price of the assets that Bernanke is saying the Fed can't do anything about. In other words, the Fed doesn't want uh, to 
get its hands in the market and, and, and try to manipulate asset prices, but the monetary policy is affecting asset prices on the upside. So what I said is the Fed created moral hand, has at first uh, implicitly, then explicitly promising to bail out investors of risky commitments, and by bailing out, when I wrote this, by bailing out, I meant simply uh, engaging in easy monetary policy to reflate the value of assets. Now, of course, they're actually bailing them out, uh, which is a whole separate piece of paper, uh, paper and some of the other people have written it. Now, I, in my reading of the Greenspan speech, um, the 2002 Greenspan speech, I, I think that the, even though he said that we don't know when asset bubbles are emerging and, and we can't do anything about them, he, he really describes uh, a policy, the Fed policy, as in fact creating an asset bubble. And I have an extensive quote, which is too long uh, to read, on page 20 of my paper. And I, I, I think contrary to his protestations, he, he knew what he was doing. For, for what reason? I don't know. I can't, I can't figure out. Okay. Um, so that's the sense in which I think monetary policy can create moral hazard. Uh, and has. And, uh, and now I'll try to connect these two parts of my presentation up. Good. Uh, the current situation gives the classic appearance of a boom and bust chronicled by many of the business cycle theorists from Vixel to Hayek to Keynes to Miradal. It, it has an Austrian Vixelian flavor because of the involvement of long-lived assets. So the Austrians, uh, normally we're talking about commercial assets rather than housing assets. But it also has, as a number of people have alluded to, uh, all of the characteristics now of a Fisherian debt deflation. And I think we all ought to re-read Fisher on this because it's very serious. Now, what is to be done? Uh, short quote from Hayek. And this was right after he won the Nobel Prize in 74. I find myself in an unpleasant situation. I had preached for 40 years that the time to prevent the coming of a depression is during the boom. During the boom, nobody listened to me. Now everybody wants to ask me how to cure this. And so at the end of my paper and in the piece that Larry nicely, uh, it was Tuesday's Wall Street Journal, and contrary to what someone said, everybody should read the editorials in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, is we've got to come up with some mechanism that breaks this just this small hazard cycle and, we, and not reflate again and deflate. As I point out in that piece in the journal, we have lost literally 10 years of capital accumulation or the value thereof uh, because of this cycle. And uh, so I suggested that uh, that thought be given again to uh, to uh, going to a form of a commodity standard. And I didn't specify that it would be a gold standard, but there are lots of ideas out there for commodity standards. Gold, it just it, it's tried and true, and people know how it works. Now, the classic argument for that is that having to acquire a commodity, being both buyer and seller in order to maintain the, the parity between the, uh, the price, uh, involves expenditure of real resources, which restrains uh, expansionary monetary policy. And that's true. Of course, that's true. That's the main effect of, of some kind of commodity standard. But it does something else that addresses the problem, which I do believe is a real problem, even though I think this less asset, asset Bible, bubble was obvious by the middle of 2005 for sure. Um, but 
it, in the general case, it, it could be difficult. There's no market signal telling the Fed when it's creating an asset bubble. But if you're on a commodity standard, it has information content that a fiat money standard does not have, namely the commodity or basket of commodities, if that's the form you take, uh, are going to be traded in spot and futures market 24-7 globally. And if, you, if, the monetary, if there's a stimulative monetary policy, an easy monetary policy, that is causing a, a, a bubble in the economy, the price of the commodity, the monetary commodity, is on, the, on these financial markets itself going to rise, which would be a signal to the central bank uh, that it needs to restrain itself, and if it ignores the signal, then it will be forced to restrain itself by the loss of reserves. Um, that is one way of automatically, for a central bank automatically to know that it's creating an asset bubble. And again, my position is not, it's not that they should uh, deflate bubbles. It's they should not, through monetary policy, create them. There's nothing we can be done about bubbles that are being created by some real factor. We wouldn't want the central bank deflating that. But uh, they should not at least be in that business. And I think I made it. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to say uh, a little bit more on the moral hazard um, theme without sort of getting into the arguments about what it really means. Um, and I'm reminded in this context of a comment thank you, uh, by a Wall Street passerby at the time of the bailout. And this gentleman was asked what he thought about it. And he said, well, it's a bit like not being invited to a party and then being given the bill for it. <laughs> so... My take on this is essentially that moral hazard is rampant and out of control. And just to, to spell this out a little bit, uh, the essence of it is excessive risk-taking. Uh, we've seen this with uh, subprime, and we've seen it with what Robert Peston of the BBC described as the hedge fund greed game. It's a nice little label, that, and a very appropriate one, I believe. Basically, head, uh, partners would invest their backers' money get a 2% management fee and 20% on the uptake, the upside, and 0% on the downside. That's a really great deal if you can get it. It obviously creates a, a great inducement to take risks with other people's money. And then on to make matters worse, once paid, your bonuses are not recoverable. So this institutionalizes a, a form of short-termism and, and discourages people from taking a more responsible, longer-term longer-term view. These are just examples of a, a deeper problem, and I think the, the essence of it, to, to put my finger on it, is that the financial services industry, I use the word services in inverted commas, has an incomparable talent for privatizing gains and socializing losses. And as a result of that, I think the very political legitimacy of the market system is, is under threat. So basically, instead of creating value, as we were assured, the practices of financial engineering, huge leverage, dubious accounting, and dodgy credit rating have enabled practitioners to extract value on a massive scale, and not to put too fine a point of it on it, to walk away with the loot. And it, 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 I think the key question is, how is it that the control systems, we're talking about risk management, so-called, we're talking about uh, corporate governance, so-called. We're talking about financial regulation. How is it that the control systems fail to stop all this? 
Well, so the first question then is what went wrong with financial risk management? Well, if I had about six hours here to talk, I still wouldn't really get to the bottom of this. Um, but I think you know, we can talk about modelling assumptions, fat tails and dubious, you know, inst- unstable correlations and so forth. Um, but just to, to, um, to identify a key assumption that has been repeatedly made and very inappropriately, is it's the ignoring of the systemic interaction. It's a bit like going to the cinema and looking to see where the exit is in case there's a fire, thinking that you're okay, not, not realising that everybody else will be running for the fire, for, sorry, for the exit in a fire as well. Um, and you also find that uh, modelling assumptions are focused on the normal rather than the abnormal. So we spend too much time protecting ourselves against the risks that don't matter and leaving ourselves more exposed to the risks that do. So in other words, it's like having a chocolate teapot. It looks great, but it's useless. Um, the, net result, the net result of this is that the practice of what passes for financial risk management actually exacerbates financial instability. We'd be better off if we didn't do it. And I think the epitaph of risk management is, is going to be the following. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> so, thank you. But I think the most basic problems are the simple economic ones, and I'd like to identify two here. First off, if the incentive to take risks is strong enough, to take excessive risks is strong enough, then excessive risks will be taken. That's obvious. But there's a deeper problem as well. However good the risk managers might be, and most of them are pretty bad, uh, and however good the systems that they install, they still report to the senior management, to the executives. If the senior managers themselves are working on remuneration packages that reward excessive risk-taking, then risk management is not going to work. So the bottom line is the whole edifice of financial risk management is built on sand. Now, trying to follow this thread, senior management out of control means the end of corporate accountability. And I'd just like to give you one example. We can all pick our favourite villains. Um, My particular favourite is the chief executive of Northern Rock Bank in the UK. Now, Northern Rock used to be a sleepy sort of building society, and in their offices, they used to have a big picture of the Rock of Gibraltar, the sense the rock, as opposed to hitting the rocks. It has a different <laughs> connotation now. The people coming from this area, if I can just make a kind of semi-racist point here, speak a language that nobody outside the region can understand. And I say this, I know what I'm talking about, because I come from the region myself. <laughs> but... As you can see, I've managed to learn to speak English uh, since then, but I I can't quite shake off the limey accent. Anyway, along comes Adam Applegarth, an ambitious young CEO. He comes up with a a very aggressive, innovative business model, rapid growth, large-scale reliance on the markets for finance, and a very accommodating mortgage policy. You could borrow up to 125% of the value of your property and up to six times your annual income. That's a pretty good deal. Anyway, this aggressive business model worked very, very well until, in fact, they became the fifth biggest mortgage provider in the UK. And then it all came unstuck quite suddenly in the summer of last year. The bank then lost the confidence of its depositors, faced the first bank run in Britain since Over and Gurney in 1866, 
the bank was then bailed out and nationalised. And after the bailout, the senior executives insisted that the bank's model had been a good one because it had worked well till August. (laughs) Now, they they also said that they hadn't done anything wrong, even though they hadn't stress-tested their exposure to a market liquidity dry-up, the very thing that their business model left them prone to. So this has all the credibility of the captain of the Titanic saying everything was fine till the damned iceberg turned up. And obviously there was a huge uproar about this, and Mr. Applegarth was forced to resign. Nonetheless, he got a very generous severance package so he could go back to his mansion and spend more time with his money. It also transpired that he'd been cashing in his shares quietly, which I think was a nice touch of confidence in his own leadership. So basically... You know, how did corporate governance fail so badly? I think this is a very important question that we all need to look at. My own solution, I, I always go for sort of um, the most radical solution, is to go back to uh, the, the joint stock company itself and ask what is wrong with the joint stock form. And if I can quote Adam Smith on this, he says, negligence and profusion must always prevail in the management of such a company. I think Adam Smith was, was right The root problem, to my way of thinking, is limited liability, which creates that asymmetric return, which encourages excess risk-taking. In the 1850s, when the limited liability uh, legislation was introduced in Britain, there was an almighty and very, very bitter row about this. And if I can just quote the conclusions from from a recent study of this by Dave Campbell, he says, limited liability under the Companies Act was was not the product of private negotiation in a market, but it was the product of a public intervention. Limited liability is not a creature of the market. It's the first big legislative intervention in the market system. So you may not agree with that as a a possible solution, but I think it's a fundamentally important debate that we have to have, and I would like to emphasise that what we do not need in this area is simply a more severe version of Sarbanes-Oxley. That doesn't work. And if we don't come up with solutions, you can count on our leftist friends that they will come up with solutions. Now, if I can just briefly turn to the policy failures. Um, Obviously, we've got government intervention into the housing market. We have monetary policy. We have the destabilizing effects of deposit insurance. And we have capital adequacy regulation. Um, I don't have time to to go into these in any details. I'd just like to focus a little bit on the capital adequacy regulation. Now, step back a bit and ask yourself, wasn't this meant to protect us so we could sleep safe in our our beds knowing that our our wealth was was safe? Uh, Well, it might just be me, but I get the impression that it hasn't delivered. But... I would also say that if you think about it, there was never any reason to expect that it ever possibly could work. You've got to bear in mind, regulation emanates from a highly politicised committee process, and the regulations that come out are the product of a lot of arbitrary decisions, compromises, political horse trading, and all that sort of stuff. And I would say it's simply naive to expect that process to come up with something sensible. And I'm reminded here of a nice little anecdote by Ricardo Rebonato, from a big risk conference in 2005. He quotes a senior, sadly he doesn't name this person, a senior official of one of the big international regulatory bodies. 
looking over the hundreds of pages of the new highly quantitative Basel II uh, regulatory rule book, this gentleman shook his head, sighed, and then said, it does rather read as if it's been written without adult supervision. <laughs> anyway, um, The most convincing argument against capital adequacy regulation is not a theoretical argument at all. It's simply to look at how it actually works. So let me return to my favorite bank, Northern Rock, and, and look at what happened there. Now, in 2006, the, uh, the British National Audit Office audited the UK Financial Services Authority, the, the, the financial regulator, and I'd like to quote what it said. It said that the FSA is a well-established regulator with an impressive set of processes and structures to help tackle high-risk organizations and markets. Well, that's good to know. At the time, the city minister, Ed Balls, took this as a ringing endorsement of the regulatory structure that he and his muppeteer, Gordon Brown, had created. You can see I'm not a fan of Gordon Brown. <laughs> And apologies to the Muppets, I like them. Um, <laughs> anyway, it gets better, this. Along comes Northern Rock. This is an institution that has grown very, very rapidly over the previous few years. Now, that, to my way of thinking, is a red flag. It relied more heavily than any other major UK bank on access to the markets for wholesale funding. That, to my way of thinking, is another red flag. How does the FSA handle Northern Rock? Well, for most of the period, it had Northern Rock supervised by insurance specialists. The big bank supervised by insurance specialists who knew apparently very little about banking. Now, it, it, the story appears to be that whoever was in charge of this thought these guys could do with a bit of work experience. Anyway, from the period between 2005 and August 9, 2007, only eight supervisory meetings took place. These involved low-level FSA staff. Of these meetings, five took place over a single day and two were telephone meetings. When the FSA investigated further to see what kind of audit trail there was, they discovered that these supervisors uh, hadn't bothered to take any notes. So there were no records of anything. So anyway, from February 2007, Northern Rock's share price starts to go down. Another red flag. Then in the summer, of course, we, start, we see defaults escalating, which is another red flag. So what does, the, uh, does it occur to the FSA that Northern Rock might be in any danger? No, not at all. Does it occur to the FSA that it might be a good idea to advise Northern Rock to stress test its exposure to a liquidity crisis? Not at all. What does it do? It approves a dividend payment, and it put Northern Rock on a, a fast track to approval of its models. And then within a matter of weeks afterwards, Northern Rock hit the rocks. All hell broke loose. Then the subsequent parliamentary report into the fiasco uh, was absolutely scathing. And the phrase that comes to mind is asleep at the wheel. The FSA itself carried out an investigation. And, and the story that they paint in their investigation is like something out of the Keystone Cops. Okay. So anyway, fortunately, that's all in the past now. 
the new FSA chairman, Lord Turner, now assures us that this won't happen again and that the FSA will hire better regulators in future. So that's really reassuring. So basically, there'll be no more uh, Keystone cops, but the next disaster is likely to be Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> anyway, the bottom line, if somebody takes a risk, then somebody has to bear it. Okay? If I take a risk at your expense, that's moral hazard, and that's a bad thing. And as Milton Friedman might have put it, there ain't no such thing as a free risk. And may rest in peace. Thank you. Yes, we have time for some questions. Yes. In, in the far back, yes, yes. talking about how uh, the, the, you can have a 0% inflation rate while still having a bubble forming due to the fact that you can have uh, you know, money being absorbed by increased productivity. Um, so my question is, uh, what is the reason that we still have a huge demand for dollars in the world? Why, why are con- other countries like PRC and others still wanting to, is it, is, it, is it like a friend who you've lent so much money to you can't see them fail because you'll never get anything back? I mean, isn't this really what's keeping everything propped up? It's just the, the other countries' demand for our dollars? Yeah, it was me. Uh, the, end, the simple answer to your question is yes. I mean, I think that uh, uh, the holders of dollars, especially the foreign holders of dollars, are, if, especially if they're large holders, Oh, is this mic not? Oh, yeah, sorry. Massive increase in, in uh, reserves, which has already been discussed, are going to be very hard to drain out of the system. And, and of course, it, if you could drain them out too fast, you would have deflation, but I don't think that's the risk. So whether the dollar will continue to be strong and interest rates continue to be as low as they are uh, going forward in, in a year or so, I think is problematic. Uh, yes. Could I, could I uh, just weigh in the two risks of that scenario? Um, a reformation of inflation when the economy gets out of recession and a, a reduction in the long run, a reduction of the role of the dollar as a global reserve currency. Those, those two factors will reach some kind of threshold level. It could come to a, it could come to, I wouldn't say a dollar crisis, but it could come to a treasury crisis or dollar combined dollar treasury crisis. Some deep, deep disturbance in international capital flows. I didn't hear that. Could you repeat that loudly?
As far as I, I think there's no, there's no consideration at all to this. Okay, next question, yes, sir. <coughs> yes. Peter Battaglia, Johns Hopkins, size. Um, for Mr. O'Driscoll, since we're talking about the dollar, if you are successful in pursuing your idea of creating a commodity-based uh, new monetary standard here, which might then in the future constrain monetary expansion, what would you do with the vast amount of non-constrained dollars that are already out in the market? Is that, in fact, a, real, a realistic proposition, the one you're making, in light of this constraint? Well, I mean, it's obviously, uh, it, it's obviously an issue uh, that would have to be considered and would have to be considered very seriously. That's the problem of, be, of being the reserve currency. Uh, but I don't think that is the biggest impediment. <clears throat> yes, you had a question? Uh, Andrew, you had suggested that uh, we have uh, mechanisms, extant mechanisms that we don't trust. And I mean, I think that it's a wonderful uh, way to put it. So then the, the question I have, and this this goes to uh, to perhaps Mr. Dowd, who suggested that if we don't have solutions, there are folks who have them for us. Um, do we have examples uh, of how those might work as compared to these modeled concerns that uh, loss of GDP, uh, loss of taxes, uh, that co consequential losses frustrate these mechanisms that we have, that this is an as-applied situation, not, uh, you know, not, uh, not the background uh, theoretical situation? I guess I'll, I'll jump in first. I think um, if your concern is... Um the banking system, then you have a set of policy levers that you're obligated to let work. And I wasn't suggesting that there was no room for discretion. I just wanted the government to be a little bit more discreet about it, not show its cards so early. If your concern is one of economic activity and you feel like your banking system is already a bit impaired, then the logical tool is fiscal policy. And the, you know, the mad scramble seems to be taking place there. So if you go back, uh, a, uh, I guess it's almost a year, the, the mantra was that the economy is going to slip into recession and we need something timely, targeted, and temporary to deal with that. And so that led to, after some wrangling, $150 billion that just went into the ether. And stimulus is one of those words. I would put it in there with rescue and bailout that we ought to just expunge. Stimulus has become an excuse for us to take our kids' money to buy things just for the sake of buying them. I think an honest assessment of what is needed in the country would involve a whole lot of capital spending through what have been traditionally, but don't have to be necessarily, traditionally federal government activities, infrastructure uh, and the like. You should buy things that you need, and if your concern is economic activity, you will put money into the banks in proportion to how relevant they are to more economic activity. So I think, I think you could put too much pressure on monetary policy. We should have pulled the fiscal policy ripcord uh, about a year ago in a more serious way. That's my thought. I'll turn it over to Kevin. Okay. Yes. Hold on a second. Get the mic. Uh, 
I have a paraphrase from someone we all miss. What if we said money is always and everywhere a political phenomenon? I think that's, I think that's the, the big lesson here. And there's the sociopathology in politics that they can't ever admit they made a mistake. Um, the, the irrational party in moral hazard is not the alcoholic or the shirker or whoever. The irrational party is the enabler. It just comes back again and again to you know subsidize this this high risk behavior. Uh, I can't think of anything higher risk to a republic than you know consuming our capital by just printing all this money. Um, so I guess my question becomes, uh, what will happen? I mean, imagine this uncertainty in the marketplace now because of political pronouncements and waiting for the next shoot to, to drop and all this. What will happen to investment in the United States uh, if serious differences begin to develop between the various public authorities that have an influence over monetary policy? What happens when there's differences between regional governors and the chair? What happens when there's differences between the House and the Senate or in banking committee? What happens when the Treasury, no, you know, when the, when the Fed no longer accommodates the Treasury? What, what happens when these political differences about money actually come right out in the open? Uh, what will the investment climate be like then? Anybody want to take a stab? Well, I, I think that next year is going to be a very interesting year, and, and I would not want to be president of the United States next year. <laughs> Kevin? I'm all right. Yes. If you take a look at the long-term 21-month uh, moving average of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you find out it's 8,300 right now. Mm -hmm. So with a 6,000-point drop in the Dow, you've basically just come down to the long-term moving average. Is it possible that a lot of what we're talking about here is just really mean reversion from the most speculative, uh, energetic time of uh, the markets? Yeah, I would say that, yeah. Simple as that. Well, it's, it's 10 years of lost capital accumulation because it's – it's almost exactly where it was 10 years ago. Pick any day this year and go back 10 years. Are you trying to suggest we have more to go down? <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Hold on, hold on a second. Wait for the mic. Uh, having had long experience of risk managers myself, I suggest that uh, we hire them, we empty our prisons of the confidence men and the carny operators and put them in the job because they're the only ones who will find it. But for Professor Driscoll, I have a more serious uh, question. Okay. Uh, and the question has to do with whether or not we knew what we were doing and the growth and productivity that we seemingly had in the uh, second half of the 90s and in the first half of uh, this century. My own contention is, is that the, when the U.S. ran, increased its current account deficit from 1% or 1.5% to 7%, that because of mispricing of inputs, 
as, a, as opposed to outputs. The paradigm shift that Greenspan talked about, that increase in productivity was illusionary. And that also helped keep, and in absence of a very stimulative monetary policy, the competition, low-wage competition from Asia, would have, would have because of the Heckscher-Oline, Samian, Stolper uh, theorems, have had a devastating effect on the American worker. Uh, the one statistic that, that, that always wait, stuck me... Wait, let me stop you there and, and let, let him answer before the session ends. Thank you. Um, I think what was illusory, and I say it in the paper, was the great moderation. It never happened. Uh, and to the degree that that's tied to your question, then, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the wipeout of, of the Dow from 14 down to where it is now, 14,000 down to where it is now, is the market's saying there was an awful lot of profits that weren't real. So I think that gets to the point you're making. Uh, and uh, it, it is sobering. It's, there was a lot of mispricing, and it wasn't all in the housing market. As, as happened in Japan, the property boom was also a stock market boom. Uh, risk risk was, was not being attended to across the board. Um, Otherwise, it's not just the prices of financial services firms and property-related firms that took a hit. If, if it had just been that sector, then that's what, that's what should be down. Okay. And that concludes this session. There will be a break, and the next panel is entitled The Way Forward, and we look forward to it. Thank you.